Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again just for another day to gather together as your children to dine on the bread of life, which is your word, which is your person. We know you are our very sustenance, our source of strength and peace. And we ask that you open our eyes again this evening through your Holy Spirit, teach us and guide us. Father, we also ask for special prayers for the sick this evening. You know who we're talking about, all those that are struggling in some very serious conditions. We ask that you bless them and touch them in a merciful way. Show them your love and show those around those suffering your love and your plan as we know you have a reason for everything. Father, most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, taking sin and death out of the way at the cross so that those who trust in him will never perish but have eternal life. We're so grateful, Father, for this gift you've purchased for us. Help us never be familiar with this. Bless this message. It's in your son's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 18. Uh, turn in your Bibles again to Proverbs 23. We're going to take one last look at a few verses in this chapter. And while you turn there, one message the Spirit has been giving us is that we've been deceived from our upbringing by the modern-day American lifestyle. Um, more than we even calculate on our mother we can figure the deception is really great because it's from childhood so a lot of things that are not good and that are abnormal appear totally normal and and fine unless the word of god really shines a bright light on it and and you know shakes us sometimes in our souls to help us see the deception because many years ago, if you go back decades and decades in America, our lifestyle in this country used to be one of character and respect and honor. That was prevalent. You know, it was rare to find the things we find today. And it was properly shunned upon as just not right, just not godly, right? And back then, there was a beautiful fear of the Lord penetrating it all. But right now in our day and age, modern-day America, we've been deceived more than we realize. So we have to be open. You have to be humble because the Spirit's been trying to get to us, you know, to, to get into our souls in this way, to penetrate our arrogance even, the things we hold on to that aren't good. Um, we've got to stay humble here because our lifestyle in America has turned into a lifestyle of selfishness and gluttony. And... If you don't think it's selfishness or gluttony, then you don't see it, right? It's not a sin, at least in your eyes. So we have to see, our eyes have to be open to what's good and what's not, what's normal and what's not, because of how we've been brought up. So since childhood, we've been brought up and trained by the world to think the American lifestyle of today is good and acceptable. 
And the key phrase that hit me on Sunday is trained by the world. Trained by the world. We saw a lot of wisdom in Proverbs 23 in which the Spirit asked us to personify America. If America were the ruler in this chapter, he would be the one to be on guard with while in his company and to be careful what we hear and accept from him. So look again at Proverbs 23.1. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat, uh, meaning curb your appetites, if you are a man of great appetite. And in the NIV, that, that says gluttony in the NIV. It says put a knife to your throat, curb your appetite, if you're a man of great gluttony. Okay? Because the rich man, let's say, or even the American lifestyle, is going to attempt you to get more into your gluttony. I mean, that, if there's a word that describes the American lifestyle, that's probably it. Not just with food, although food's a big part of it. But you can be a glutton, you can be a pig, if you will, trying to hoard everything to yourself and get more and need more and have more on any area of life or on any, you know, thing that you think you want or need. So we have to be careful of the seductions of this world. If you're sitting down with a ruler, consider carefully what's before you. Put a knife to your throat if you are a man of gluttony. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Deceptive food. You can just picture a, 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 someone who wants to get something from you enticing you with good food. Right? Isn't that what someone does when they want something from you? They treat you extra special. They'll take you out for a nice dinner. What do men do today to women? Take them out for a nice dinner and try to get something else. Right? What do they do? It's, it's let me flatter you. Let me deceive you, basically, so that you can fall into my trap. Verse 4, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. The American lifestyle promotes getting rich, as we know, or to gain as much as we can. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. It's a lie. Cease from even thinking about it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. There it is again. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. In other words, be careful who you associate with. He will eat you up and spit you out in the end, like Satan does. If he's a selfish man offering you part of his prosperity, he wants something in return. And verse 7, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. Many people in this world will say the right thing and even act generously. But many are just looking out for what they can gain from you. So be careful who you hang out with. And then almost a summary statement in verse 17 we went to on Sunday do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. That could be a good capstone. Like, just remember this, okay? Let's boil it down to this. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always.
Who should our hearts envy? Who should you desire to be like, even? It's tempting to desire to be like the rich man, let's say, the powerful man, the, um, the one that has everything or can offer you everything or has all the attention and love from other people for the wrong reasons. It's tempting to want to be like that person, but it's a, a lie. It's a house of cards where we should be looking at the Lord. Desire to be like the Lord. Follow his example. Not those in the world that are temporarily prosperous and trapped in evil. And if you want to read a good chapter about why the wicked prosper, go read Psalm 73. So you stop envying the wicked. You stop envying sinners who, are, who appear to be gaining and enjoying life. But Psalm 73 says, your word basically tells me what the end is. So now I see why. One of the amazing things about the Bible is that something written 3,000 years ago, like the book of Proverbs, can speak to us perfectly in our day and age. And that's because God's wisdom is perfect, it never fades away, and it never gets old. God knows man and his flesh. I think of Bill, uh, Bill often will say, you know, Nothing's changed, right? Something to that effect. Nothing's changed. It's all the same now as it was that back then, thousands of years ago. Men had the same problems, the same weaknesses, the same ugliness, the same exact um, hindrances, addictions. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's all in the Word, and, and these nations like Israel went through it, and you see the same thing that happened there happened in here. So we shouldn't be surprised, and God certainly isn't. God knows man in his flesh so well, right? And that never changes in this world. So the warnings of ancient times are the same warnings that are extremely valuable today, even in our country. And the world will tell us the word of God is old. It's old-fashioned. It's not keeping up with the times and the culture. But honestly, I think that's because they haven't read it. Forget the fact that some principles seem old-fashioned with today's, you know, liberal culture, let's say. But they haven't read the wisdom in the book. They haven't seen how it describes today even, to a T. They haven't seen how the nation of Israel went through the same things that we go through as a nation at different times. They don't actually give it a chance, in other words, to see the applicable wisdom from, like, Proverbs 23, when you, we just read what we read and what's going on in the world and, and, and with wealth and the dis- deception of wealth. Or the description of the end times in Second Timothy, for example. They don't actually read it and be like, whoa, that's exactly like our country right now. This is kind of weird. When was that written? So without giving it a chance, they, of course they're going to use the easy way out excuse that it's old-fashioned and that, you know, we're beyond that now. Even though it was good for 6,000 years, this last 100 years it's not really applicable to. So the word of God is perfect wisdom from our Father above, and it will rescue the humble from the deceptions of this world, but only the humble. On the board, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 in the NIV, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, 
joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God is not only omnipotent, but it's also omniscient. We have the perfect weapon, in other words. We have the perfect scalpel to penetrate the hard souls of men if we stick to the word. You know, when I read this passage on the board, you know, how it's a double-edged sword that penetrates the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Picture the sharpest, most precise scalpel that a surgeon could have in his hands, right? And the cut would be so fine, you can't even see a cut happened. Like that kind of precision. And that's, that's some, a worldly analogy for us to try to picture it. God's word is beyond that. How does he get between the soul and the spirit, right? The joints and the marrow, like the innards and precisely, exactly being able to separate them. So this is the word of God, and this is the power, the omnipotent power of God, and he can penetrate the hard souls of men. And if we use that weapon that he lets us use, we can have a a part in that goodness. Also, we are to represent Jesus as ambassadors. He's the one who embodied grace and truth. The word and Jesus are one and the same. On the board, John 1.14 in the Amplified. And the word Christ became flesh, human, incarnate, and tabernacled, fixed his tent of flesh, lived a while among us. And we actually saw his glory, his honor, his majesty, such glory as an only begotten son receives from his father, full of grace, favor, loving kindness. And truth. What a picture. And he's the one we represent and we can imitate. As came out on Sunday, we ought to actually rejoice in the fact that we're not to bear the brunt of the load in this endeavor called life. And let's face it, even as believers, we, we do that a lot, don't we? We take it back, so to speak, from God. We try to give it to God, but then we try to solve things in our own manners, our own ways. But we should be rejoicing in the fact that we're not supposed to bear the brunt of the load. Christ wants to bear the brunt of the load for us. We're not to try to live in our own strength, trying to defeat the enemy with our wisdom and strategies and power. And that's an that's a easy thing to fall into because we all have different strengths, right? And when you have a strength, you kind of cling to it. You're like, well, I'm good at this. I can figure this out. Or, you know, so-and-so is not as good at this as me, but I know I am. So maybe I should try, try to exert my energy and use this strength I have to defeat the kingdom of darkness in my life. But it's a losing battle. We have Christ as our strength, and those who rely on him will see how light his burden really is how he's carrying the load. Go to Matthew 11, verse 28. Let's get a friendly reminder of how the load that we're carrying is supposed to be light if we turn to Christ. 
His load is light. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we are to be strong in the strength of His might, as Scripture tells us. He is with us carrying the load, and He can give us the victory. Turn to Ephesians 6, verse 10. It takes humility to give it back to God, to give it over to God. In our arrogance, the arrogance of our flesh, we, we often want to hold on to it thinking we can somehow do the job, I guess, impress people, I don't know. But it takes humility to bow your head and close your eyes and, and cry out to him and say, I need your help. I need your strength. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Just like Jesus told us in Matthew 11, to take his yoke, take my yoke upon you, here we're told to put on something else, this time the armor of God. So these are both divine resources and garments that allow us to access supernatural power. The Lord himself is saying, I want you to use my power, and I have it all. Will you, you know, take my yoke? Will you put on my armor instead of relying on your own resources? So we have to humbly choose to put these things on, is the point. And we're told to do so so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's how we're going to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How do you stand firm against the, the most powerful, beautiful, intelligent angel that God ever created? Unless you have God's power. It's hopeless otherwise. So on the board we saw that phrase, so that without the full armor of God, we are far too weak to defend the truth. Satan in the kingdom of darkness is far too cunning, far too good at lawyering, far too sneaky and slippery. We'll out-talk you, out-think you. Talk about sitting at the table with the rich ruler and letting him seduce you in a way. That's what he does. So without the full armor of God, we're in deep trouble. But we must remember the following scripture in verse 12. So we keep the right perspective in this antagonistic world. Okay? Perspective's everything, right? Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, I don't know about you, but I have trouble remembering that, sometimes believing that. <laughs> Because you see flesh and blood in front of you, right? And there's your challenge, it appears. But really it's spiritual things at work to throw you off your game, to seduce you, to deceive you, etc. So our struggle is not against flesh and blood. 
but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. You know, it's really great that God just asks us to resist the devil instead of defeat him. He's, he's not even asking us to, you know, take, go on the offensive. He does that. He's asking us to resist the devil, to not give in to his lies, to not give in to the, the things in our subjective culture right now, right? That's what he's asking us to do. But even that requires divine power because Satan is so slippery, so seducing. So verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Interesting, there's the word preparation. What's our series about? By grace, he prepared the apostles, right? Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Boy, did God do that for us in the last year and a half. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We just read that in Hebrews 4, right? The sword piercing. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we see the whole scene is a spiritual battle. How many spirits were trying to get Paul to not speak boldly? To hold back, to be timid. The whole thing is a spiritual battle. And on the board, Paul said that I may speak boldly. This is the same end goal that we ought to pray for. Not just for ourselves, which is fine, but also for each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to speak boldly of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan doesn't want us to do that. Satan wants us to think we can't do that and use excuses as to why we can't. But remember, this is a supernatural ball game here. If you rely on Christ, if you rely on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, God's going to do things with you that you could never do on your own. So don't say, I can't do that, because this, this is two separate... Um, you know, ball fields, two, two separate realms. In the spiritual realm, to the person that humbly submits to God, God can use them for anything, literally do anything. All things are possible with God, right? So this truth on the board about speaking boldly the gospel of Christ is lost in many churches today. The focus is often on other things, so many other things. If we could eavesdrop on certain churches and their services, we'd be disgusted. Not to say there aren't some churches, churches teaching the Word of God, but there are so many churches focused on the wrong things. Singles groups, um, prosperity teaching, rituals, 
religiosity, um, doing things in the community at the expense of the Word of God, right? Without the right motivation, without learning God's way of doing things. So many things they're focused on. And Satan's pretty happy about that. He's fine with those churches. Many don't focus on the calling to spread the gospel, which by grace God has opened our eyes to the simplicity and the largeness of that task. But it's one sole task, really, that we're all given. And not only to spread the gospel, but to do so with boldness, confidence, and love. Speaking the truth in love. So that's how we can be empowered by God. Being able to speak with boldness, confidence, and love. God will do that for us. Even the shyest of believers can be given power by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth boldly in love. In other words, yes, God can even use you and empower you. Little old you. And look how far he's taken you so far in your life. Even if you're a new, newer believer, you can see things that he's done and how he's changed you and how he's opened your eyes in certain areas. And, and he's just continuing to do that for those who stay humble. Remember the blind man in our recent studies who, after being given sight by our Lord, was asked to stand up to the Pharisees. Talk about a tough job. Talk about a spiritual war in your face. This blind man was asked to do that. How confident or bold of a person do you think the blind man was before he was healed? I don't know about you, but I'd probably be pretty timid if everyone else could see, but I couldn't, for example. Or I couldn't work for a living and had to beg or whatever, right? How bold or timid? Where's, where's his human strength? Very limited. But yet God chose him and empowered him. That's the key word, I think, empowered him. God chose him, picked him out for this healing, Jesus Christ did, and empowered him to be a good ambassador with boldness and courage. Boldness, courage, and love even. So go back to John 9, verse 1. I just want you to see or be reminded of almost the prediction Jesus made why he picked and called out this man to do something beyond his own ability. John 9, 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither this man sin, neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, when Jesus said that, the disciples had no idea what he was talking about until he healed him. And then maybe they figured it out when he finally got called before the Pharisees and had to give a witness, a testimony, right? But why was this man born blind? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. How about the fact that the works of God are supposed to be displayed in you? That you and I have been called to Christ by grace so that the works of God could be displayed in us despite our weaknesses. Just another reminder that God loves to use the weak to shame the strong. 
And the blind man's a perfect example of that. So if you feel weak or feel you can't do, you know, boldly, confidently in love, preach the gospel, you're thinking in your flesh. You're in good company. Look at the blind man. If God can use him, God can use any of us, right? Because I, I don't think any of us can say we're in a weaker position than the blind man was. So by faith, allow God to use you, to change you and empower you with his strength and his might. By faith. You can't do it on your own. Amen. You are weak. Amen. But by faith, he'll empower you. You'll say things that you didn't know you knew, right? You've all been there probably at one point where God used you to witness to somebody and something came out of your mouth and you're like, wow, I didn't even remember I knew that, if that makes sense, you know? The Holy Spirit. So stop looking at your flesh. Paul wanted his disciples to pray that he might speak boldly as he should. And so we must pray for one another, and that will also lead to victories that we'll be able to celebrate together in the Lord. Let's pray more for one another. Let's pray more for each other's boldness and situations and pulpits. Um, let's share those things with one another and even ask for prayer when we need the encouragement or, you know, whatever, the boost. And then we'll share in the victories of that. We're going to see fruit from that and sharing the good news of people coming to Christ or people coming to church. and It's already happened a lot in our church. So it's very exciting. What's next? On the board in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Remember, uh, was it 1 Timothy? When we weren't given a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline, well, the gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Again, on the board, the Spirit reminded us that our primary goal in life after salvation is to spread the gospel and to do so boldly. We aren't to live a life for self always seeking what we can gain from this world or from another person. That's a counterfeit life. That's not real life. That ends in misery, as in Proverbs 23. Remember, as we heard on Sunday, the lust of the flesh wants to conquer everything. You don't even realize your flesh is doing that at times. But it is. Pay attention and examine your motivations at times, and you'll see it. It might make you vomit, but you'll see it. And that's what you want to do is see it, right? Because then it's truth. As long as you see it, as long as you see the light, it's all good. But your flesh is doing things in your life right now that, that you've convinced yourself that it's not doing, for example. The flesh wants to take every possible personal gain it can. But the Spirit wants to set us free from the lie of selfishness and its rotten fruit. It's just rotten, isn't it? Like when you're selfish, 
and you see you're being selfish after a while, at first it's, it's good, right? That's why we sin, because it, sin gives you pleasure for a season. We're selfish, we're gaining to self, and then you see it and you like, you're disgusted with yourself, or you're embarrassed, or you see how ugly it is. You're like, boy, I was so selfish there. Ugh, it's gross. That other people had to bear with that, for example. It just is. So let's nip it in the bud, right? It's rotten fruit that comes out of it. On the board regarding selfishness, an arrogant person never asks, what do you need in a vacuum? It's never, in other words, it's never a pure question from an arrogant person. There's always a catch in the back of their mind. There's always a pre or post analysis that includes often silently, what's in it for me? It's funny, I did this, uh, <laughs> I, I, caught, I caught it after I did it, but I did this with a customer of mine, you know? So a customer of mine needed help with something. I'm like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll help, right? And the back of my mind, I'm like, this is my customer. I'll get on their good side and I'll get more business. <laughs> Way to go, Scott. So there's the, there's the false motivations, right? Creeping right in there. I mean, let's be honest, we all do it. I'm not the only one. But what it, these are the subtle, um, poor motivations of the flesh, the selfish motivations of the flesh, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, where was I? The lust of the flesh it wants to conquer everything, right? On the board, an arrogant person never asks, what do you need in a vacuum? There's always a pre or post analysis that includes often silently. Well, I wonder what's in this for me. Or what could be in this for me? On the board, a humble person simply realizes that a person needs Christ, his gospel. Regardless of the personal cost to give it to them, they do so. This is a very important point. Um, regardless of the personal cost to give it to them, they do so. With a truly humble person, cost or gain is not even taken into account. A truly humble person. Cost or gain is not even taken into account. It's all about the person in need. That's humility. Philippians 2, verse 3. Go there. So we're all, you know, in this struggle, uh, getting away from selfishness. Um, repenting from it when we need to. Um, trying to truly just humble ourselves before the Lord and be honest. Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. With humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's the only way that's possible. True humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So as we've been learning, in our subjective society today, selfishness often results. People today say, forget truth. I want what makes me feel good. Or whatever doesn't challenge the norm. I don't want to ruffle any feathers at all. I want to fit in as much as possible so I can basically get as much as possible as well and be accepted and be comfortable in the world. It's all about protecting and promoting self. 
It's all about protecting and promoting self. On the board, manifest selfishness. We're taught at a very young age to architect a life that funnels all perceived goodness to our own accounts. Aren't we? Aren't we taught that when we're young? I mean, in so many ways, even by well-intentioned parents, for example. This is the American lifestyle that we've been sucked into, that this is okay and this is good and this is what life's all about. Where God's like, be content with the bread I give you and go save some people. Because life is short and you're a pilgrim passing through. Try telling that to your average American teenager. You're a pilgrim just passing through. Don't hold on to anything. Are you crazy? So again, we're taught at a very young age to architect a life that funnels all perceived goodness to our own accounts. If our successes happen to benefit others, we are taught to take credit for that too as yet another addition to our account. The flesh is so ridiculous. Isn't that true? Think about it. We even take credit for how we helped someone even if we didn't plan that as part of our you know, result, a result of our plan, right? On the side, by accident, someone was blessed or helped by something we did. And what do we do? Oh, yeah, I meant that. I'm a nice guy, huh? I'm a good guy. It's amazing. It's so, the flesh is so disgusting and sleazy. So let's call it out. Let's call it out. Let's repent when we need to. And as Pastor's recent blog said, let's run away when we need to. When selfishness rears its ugly head. So that's what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. And it can take a person over completely. And that leads to sin and death, remember. The lie is very easy to recognize, actually. According to the Apostle John. Because if we're humble, God opens our eyes to what's right in front of our nose. Go again to uh, 1 John 2.15. And this is so clearly and simply stated, it's as if it's for a child. So why doesn't everyone see it? Because arrogance blinds. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Pretty darn simple. You know, a child could understand that. Again, the Word of God gives us perfect wisdom to live by, but it's only going to benefit those that are humble enough to hear. And we're told the lusts of man and his selfishness will increase as we get closer and closer to the rapture, the last days. And if you don't think our culture in America is that bad, If you think pastors have been exaggerating about how filthy our country is, just listen to this passage and then give your honest opinion. Go again to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. 
If you don't think the Bible talks about modern days and applies to modern days, you're just not reading it. 2 Timothy 3.1 But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And yet, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Unfortunately, describing even a lot in American churches these days. Holding to a form of godliness. You know, kind of like the career criminal going to church to, you know, do his duty and get right with God for an hour and then go continue being a murderer. Like, holding to a form of godliness. But they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. In our country, we must be on guard for the selfish ruler type. Prosperity is king in our country. And we should avoid those who live for riches and selfish gain, even if they're not rich. Let me just say that again, because some of you are saying, oh, I don't know any rich people anyway. I'm okay. I don't have to worry about anything. No one's trying to deceive me or lure me in. Well, <laughs> avoid those that live for riches and selfish gain. Do you know anyone that lives for that stuff, even though they're poor? Or middle class or whatever? Avoid those who live for riches and selfish gain, even if they're not rich. Because this is an attitude that's the disease. It, the, the addiction, for example, to wealth, that's, that's the disease that we got to be really careful getting seduced into that way of thinking. You know, people, we can even take something good and make it bad, like hard work. Hard work is good. It's good for a lot of reasons. God tells us to work hard. But if you become obsessed with your hard work and making money, if you're obsessed with getting rich as the end goal of your hard work, your, your head's in the wrong place. You've been deceived to have a wrong priority. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, your heart is also. Right? So you could be poor, but lusting after riches. And that's the person you want to avoid also because don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You can get sucked in too. Don't start coveting what sinners have, like we started with this morning, this evening. Don't start coveting what they have just because it seems like it's going right and they're gaining some stuff that you've wanted in your flesh. It's a big lie. So be careful who you hang out with and uh, don't let yourself be influenced by their ways. 2 Timothy 3.6 for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. We saw on Sunday the weak women is from Gunai Karyan, uh, transliteration, Gynakarya. And this word specifically speaks to women, not men. In context, Paul is pointing out the easiest prey, what the Bible would call the weaker vessels in 1 Peter 3, 7, mainly because they can get emotional and uh, not, not think objectively. 
So why do you think uses, uh, Satan uses feminism as his Trojan horse today? Just think about that. Remember, the Trojan horse was used to sneak things in. It appeared as a gift, as something beautiful and good, but it was filled with enemy soldiers. Does that sound like someone you know that operates that way? Satan uses generally good concepts like helping women, like defending women, right? Honorable concept. He uses that concept to sneak lies in the back door and even things like rebellion against proper authority, for example. He's sleazy. And he, go, he approaches those that are weak, those that are without the Word of God, those that can be seduced very easily for his purposes. And in verse 7, these weak women are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. On the board, always learning. In context, Paul is referring to those women who vacillate between subjective societal norms. Even today, many have come out saying they feel pressured to be less like the woman God made them to be by feminists in general. If someone's always learning the ways of the world, well, they're going to come to a dead end, right? They have to eventually, just like sin leads to death. So they can be always learning the ways of the world and be smart in the ways of the world, but yet they know nothing, no real wisdom, which only comes from God. So people in this world can have a lot of worldly wisdom, but it's futile because they believed lies and are on the wrong path. And on this topic, the Spirit wanted me to say this to you tonight too. Don't be impressed by intelligent people in this world. And don't be intimidated by intelligent people in this world. That's what Satan wants. You can get a worldly, 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 intelligent person who knows all the facts about the world and the way the world operates and philosophy and psychology and science and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, they're smart about futile things, right? So don't let them intimidate you. You have the truth. They don't. That's why a housewife who has minimal education, who studies her Bible and prays, can embarrass an intelligent, scientific man who's trying to use human logic, can cut right to the chase with truth so that we... No matter who you are, don't be intimidated by intelligent people. God may use you to speak boldly the gospel, supernaturally even, give you, give you the power to do so, and cut right to the chase. And the truth can't help but, you know, shine light. So Satan tries to intimidate believers this way too. So you won't give the gospel to the smart person because you're worried about whatever, dealing with their intellect. But recognize Satan's schemes. That's one of them. You have the truth. And the truth can penetrate any lies, no matter how intricate the lies are. So we're getting back as we close. Oh, we got about 10 minutes here to our topic on the apostles and how God pre prepared them by grace, just like he's preparing all of us right now by grace. And I don't know about you, but on Sunday... I saw the following few points on the board, 
and I didn't really remember them from our past lessons. When we were in this series before, right? It's been over a month, I think, since we were in this By Grace They Were Prepared part of this teaching. And I didn't remember these, and I'm, I'm a teacher. I have to review these principles on purpose. So, you know, in humility, let's take these in again because uh, we lose them, even though the Spirit will bring them back to our remembrance. But First of all, we saw losing freedom. Sin is designed to create ties that bind us to worldly things. It is designed to rob us of the freedom that Christ has afforded every believer. See, we have to believe that right there. Some of us, at least in our flesh, we think sin's not that bad. Certain sins aren't that bad. Well, that's how I can get what I want, so I'm going to keep that one and follow God over here. So we're lying to ourselves, but sin is designed to create ties that bind us to worldly things. Like that rich ruler who's trying to seduce us. It is designed to rob us of the freedom of Christ or the freedom that Christ has afforded every believer in Galatians 5.1. Satan and his world system keeps holding out the carrot, hoping we'll jump at it and buy the lie. Remember, the spiritual life, the truly good things in life, are opposite of what the world and the media is telling you is good. Again, we've been seduced. We've been trained by the world. So, the good things of God, the things that truly will give us peace, are opposite the things that the world is telling us, the media is telling us. This right here is one reason alone that we should limit our intake of television and movies. Because if we go too far in that area or, or listen to too many things, what's happening? We're getting brainwashed. We're getting lied to subtly, even, even in between a good message, a good show. We're getting lied to subtly. And it's ultimately opposite of God's truth. Only God's ways lead to true freedom. On the board, freedom exists in those moments when we lose our ties to the world and cling solely to Christ. This is the truth, even though we struggle to see it at times. But God helps us along, even through suffering as we often refuse to humble ourselves. Amen? Let me repeat that. God helps us along, even through suffering, as we often refuse to humble ourselves. So by grace, God humbles us so that we will see that true freedom is only found in His Son. And sometimes that means suffering. So embrace that that your loving Father in heaven cares about you enough to not only tell you, but to show you the truth in life, even if it means hard times. That's how much He loves you. He's like, I'm not going to just let you off the hook here. I'm not going to because I love you too much. And it's going to take some suffering because you refuse to humble yourself. We all are guilty to some degree. So God's like, you need this right now. I have to press my thumb down on you a little bit. This is going to hurt. And as the scriptures told us on Sunday, when we come out the other side, we come out humble and admitting that freedom is only found in His Son. We thought freedom was in this thing in the world and that thing in the world and that thing in the world. We wouldn't let go of it. So God had to, you know, crunch our knuckles, 
play mercy with us, a little, you know, that kid game there. Play mercy and make it hurt. On the board, true conviction passes through real discomfort. It's also a test of our conviction. Do we really believe what we say we believe? Because true conviction passes through real discomfort. In other words, it doesn't quit. It doesn't run away. It doesn't give up on Christ or the faith. It says, I know this is the truth, so I'm bearing through it. God's got a plan. Romans 5, 3 through 5, James 1, 2 through 4, James 5, 11, and 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Notice the authors here. Paul, James, and Peter all tell us in these passages to rejoice in the hard times that God allows for us. And I never saw this this clearly before Sunday's message, actually. They all say to rejoice in the hard times God allows for us because it has a certain good fruit in the end that is priceless, that you will thank God for, even putting you through something. If you have true conviction that you need Christ and His ways, then no matter what you go through, you will willingly and even joyfully pass through the discomforts that cross your path. Another way of putting it, you're willing to pass through the fire when you have true convictions about Christ and that He's the only way. And these scriptures on the board are gold in the sense that they help us see the immense value and benefits of willingly enduring suffering in God's plan. Go again to Romans 5, verse 3. These verses right here are, are verses that you should all, um, you know, kind of keep somewhere. Nowhere to go when you want to talk about suffering and the value of suffering. Maybe it's to a friend that needs to hear why this suffering. Maybe you need to refer to these every time you suffer in some way for a refresher. But through tribulation, God's making us gold. You know, he's, he's, he's putting us through the fire. But in the end, we're set free like never before. So Romans 5, 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Again, notice it said in verse 3 that we exult in our tribulations. So, so we're talking about divine perspective here, aren't we? Divine perspective. That's certainly not human perspective to rejoice in tribulation. Go to James 1, 2. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I mean, to the worldly person, that sounds crazy. That sounds silly. But change your perspective. Consider it joy. It, see, that's a choice right there, folks. When we're, when we're facing suffering, we can either consider it joy or not. And by faith, we can consider it joy. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, it says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So there's this positive expectancy in all four of these passages. We're not going to have time to get to all four of them right now. But in all four of these passages, there's this positive expectancy at the beginning of them. Consider it all joy. Exult. Uh, we count those blessed who endured in James 5.11. Blessed for suffering? Blessed for those that endured suffering? Yeah, God's ways are not man's ways. And again, the point on the board is true conviction passes through real discomfort. It shines on the other side. Now you know it's true because you've gone through it and you've seen God come through for you. So on the board, we'll close with this point. Conviction about our Father. As humble believers, we embrace the trials of life as opportunities, unlike the skeptical view of the world, knowing our dad has a plan for good for us. Period. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love God. So, so again, this is the conviction that passes through the discomfort. I'm convicted about my Father in Heaven being good. As humble believers, we embrace the trials of life as opportunities. Unlike the skeptical view of the world, knowing our Dad has a plan for good for us. Amen? Isn't that awesome? And that's the truth that gets us through anything. But He just wants us to be humble. And what happens when you're humble? Right? You're given grace, you're given faith, and you come to your own convictions. It's awesome. Thank God. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your truth that sets us free. We thank you for divine perspective and wisdom to show us the immense value of anything you allow in our lives. And your divine wisdom trumps anything in this world. Help us, Father, to not listen to the ways of the world. Help us to humbly listen to you and your word and your son. Help us to be faithful disciples and to spread the gospel boldly with love. Father, we thank you in advance for answering our prayers. We ask that you bless us all as we go this evening. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit.